1: What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo right here, 17 blocks away from Madison Square Garden in New York City. And there was a time when liberals had short hair. They believed in free speech, legal immigration, and helping the poor to become middle-income earners, and hoping that those middle-income earners would become rich and then pay their fair share of taxes. That was a uh, comment that I read on Twitter. It seems that progressives are making progress towards systemically abolishing middle-income earners, or as Mark would call them, quote-unquote, the middle class, and strengthening an entire system of the population towards government dependency. Dependent on the government for everything, from health insurance to their paychecks. And no, I'm not talking about the people that are unemployed due to COVID and whatnot and who pay into unemployment insurance. I'm talking about the people getting the extra bonuses – to keep people from returning back to work. I always get a lot of flack when I talk about this because we, we shouldn't make it harder for business owners to hire people because the government is artificially inflating the job market with their tax-to-rich tax dollars, while making it easier for workers to stay out of work. Look, I get it. Everybody loves the allure of a free lunch at some point. But as you gain more experience, you realize that just because the government's handing out cash to everybody, including ex-cons and illegal immigrants, at least in New York, it doesn't make it right for the government to do that. Now, that said, I want to talk about other things that I think are inappropriate or not right for the government to do. And it's the idea that Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she thinks that it's somehow – Appropriate, it's somehow legitimate or necessary to tell the police that they need to um, ask for permission before they chase somebody on foot. Now, listen, I-, I laughed listening to this because, you know, listen, imagine, you know, hey, freeze, police. I'm going to run away. All right. Hold on. Let me ask my boss. Sarge, he's running away. Can I? Oh, suspect's running away, Sarge. Uh, I don't know what to do. Uh, hang on. Let me check with the boss. Hold on. Let me check with LeBron James. Don't do nothing. Don't do – fall back. All right, so nobody's going to do anything. Now that's it. Cops got their hands tied. Nobody's allowed to do anything. But I want you to listen to Mayor Lori Lightfoot on the um, tweet that I put out from the Bongino report where you could hear her talking about that. I'm not going to play it for you now. But do that at Rich Valdez on Twitter, at Rich Valdez on Parlor. You can go check that out because I think it's really interesting to hear her comments and to hear the the larger aspect of that story. But before I do any of that stuff, I want to ask – Uh, Mr. Jizzle, our producer today, to forward me the URL so that I can have Essential Andy Cuomo send me my uh, quote-unquote fair share because I'm going to go and sign up for my own COVID cash. And I want you to do uh, the same thing. So whatever podcasts that you use, whether it's an app that's on your tablet or an app that is on your cell phone, smartphone, whatever you use, uh, I want you to download your podcast app. And if you already have a podcast app, make sure you click subscribe to This Is America with Rich Valdez if this is your first time listening to it. If not, then you're already subscribed, and that's why you're listening to it. But share it with somebody and let somebody know because this is what we do here. Anyway, I'm at Rich Valdez on all the social media. Straight ahead, we're going to talk about something that I saw on TV, and that's going to open up a whole can of worms and Pandora's box right along with it. So don't move a muscle. This Is America keeps going right after this.
0: This Is America para inglés prima numero Dos para Rich Valdez y esto es america ahora
1: you know back in the days welcome back everybody back in the days the main thing that generals would do in a time of war was to bomb the enemy's energy source you know if it was an oil field they would take down their energy uh, the energy source the oil field whatever it was You know, cops even do it when they're doing a drug raid, they'll hit a blackout so that you don't have access to energy. This is how the enemy attacks, right? And if you're attacking your enemy, you go after their energy source. And that was back in the days. Today, the enemy is within. Today, we've got radical progressive Democrats that are trying to destroy energy right here in the United States. And this to me is uh, very unfortunate, but the enemy within is self-destructing our own energy system via the Green New Deal. And I got to tell you, I take exception to this on so many different levels. The first level is because a, I think we need options for energy so that we can continue to flourish. For the first time in you know in, in a generation, the United States has become energy independent or at least was. And probably still is. But we're going to get away from that if we allow Biden to continue doing what he's doing. Now, on Friday or Thursday night, this article came out in the Daily Mail, UK Daily Mail. Grabbing it right here. Making extra sound effects here at my paper. That's uh, Rush Limbaugh style, by the way. All right. So uh, it says here, how will Biden's climate plan affect everyday Americans? Well, one of the ways is that it may limit you to eating just one burger a month. Now, for those of you that follow me on Instagram and Twitter, you guys know, of course, on parlor, that, you know, I'm a little bit rotund. I like to eat more than one burger a month. Matter of fact, in one sitting, I'll eat more than one burger. I do a double and a triple usually when I get a burger. But anyway, they're saying that I might be limited and you, not just me, we may be limited to eating just one burger a month. a year in additional taxes and force us to spend $55,000 on an electric car, which will obviously crush American jobs. Joe Biden announced that the goal to cut emissions by 2030 compared with 2005 levels at the start of his two-day climate summit on Thursday. Now, he vowed that the plan, which would set the U.S. on a path to zero emissions, Uh, to a zero emissions economy by no later than 2050 would create jobs and boost economies. But he has yet to release any firm details on exactly how such a plan will affect the daily lives of ordinary Americans. Now, this could prompt sweeping changes that could affect how Americans eat, drive and heat their homes. Well, of course, while Biden hasn't released details, experts and recent studies have laid out what would need to change. By 2030 to reach the goal. Now, what's interesting here is, and we're going to jump into this, everybody does all of those things, right? I drive, uh, I guess, what used to be called a uh, a gas guzzler, you know, 5.4 liter V8 engine Ford Expedition. Big truck. I like it. It's comfortable. You know, I feel like I'm sitting on my couch as I'm driving. The back seat's like being in somebody's living room. It's terrific. And... When gas was five dollars a gallon, I did drive less because it was like, "Oh, are you kidding me? I'm gonna go there in my car? No way! It's gonna cost me, you know, a fortune." You know, now gas was two dollars, two fifty, two seventy two. I think was the last gas I got the day Trump left, or two sixty nine. Uh, and it, um, no, no, no. Excuse me, a dollar seventy two. I think it was. And then uh, now it's up to two seventy two. Now it's two eighty five. So yeah, I'm like a dollar ten, a dollar fifteen uh, higher than when Trump was in office. Now, this is messed up because obviously there goes a lot of road trips, which is going to impact my quality of life with my two teenage daughters, and I'll probably have to do the more eco-friendly thing, take a plane, right? burn jet fuel. These people are beyond ridiculous, but this is what happens. Now, all of this started with a guy who I like to call AOC's communist sympathizing grandpa, Bernie Sanders, health care is a right. Now, good old AOC's communist sympathizing grandpa, Bernie Sanders, says that we need a green new deal. Now, of course, he handed this off to her and she has really taken the ball and run with it. AOC, as much as I criticize her, you have to say and you have to agree. If you don't, then I think we're just not being honest. She is remarkable. And I'm remarking on her because of that. She has taken something. That's had zero legitimacy in Congress. She pressured other lawmakers to join her at a podium back in 2019, six, seven weeks after she got elected, after she had her first day sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office, didn't get any bills signed into law, but got a bunch of people to sign on the Green New Deal. Got a bunch of presidential candidates to sign on to it. And then when they made their backroom deal and agreed, we're going to let Joe El Baboso Biden become the new president of the United States, or at least the candidate, the Democrat standard bearer, her and Bernie were all over that. She was on the Climate Change Task Force chairing that. Bernie was on the uh, Unity Task Force talking about all this other type of unity and other types of socialistic uh, programs that he wanted to implement. And Biden was like, sure, no problem. As long as you vote for me and I get to say I became president, we're good. And I'll even only serve one term. At least that's how I'm surmising the plan went down. Now, we look at all of that and it's like, oh, so AOC. Now, back then, we ridiculed AOC. And now we're ridiculing Biden for repackaging, repurposing, and trying to sell us this warmed over plan as if it's new, but it's still the same AOC Green New Deal. Back then, 2019, everybody uh, all over the place was like, excuse me, you're talking about cow farts, lady. You know, and there was a whole big thing about that. But I want you to hear this montage from Trevor Noah, because Trevor Noah put together something uh, that was pretty funny. And the uh, and there's another montage that I want to play from Fox News. Now, the Fox News one, I think, really hits home because it really talks to what we were talking about, about beef. But the first one, even Trevor Noah makes fun of AOC. Check this out.
0: The Green New Deal calls for a 10-year national mobilization. The goal in one short decade to bring greenhouse gas emissions to zero, meet 100% of energy needs by renewable sources, overhaul transportation
2: systems. Expanding a high-speed rail to, quote, a scale where air travel stops becoming necessary.
0: It would modernize U.S. infrastructure, upgrade or replace every building for energy efficiency. Create millions of high-paying jobs, bring equality and equal jobs justice. justice for underserved, minority, and impoverished communities. The plan calls for government-guaranteed jobs, government-provided health care, free education for life, and safe, affordable housing for everyone.
2: Wow. That's a lot of major issues for a climate change plan to solve. I mean, (laughs) no, I expected the Green New Deal to tackle greenhouse gases and fossil fuels, but apparently it's also going to give everyone a job. And health care and free education and provide affordable housing and get your parents back together.
1: <laughs> okay, so now listen, I'm not a big fan of Trevor Noah. I don't really watch him that often, if ever. Honestly, I don't think I've ever sat and watched him uh, other than maybe today getting this clip and other clips that I've seen in the past. But even then, the immediate base of AOC was kind of ridiculing her idea and how all-encompassing it was, right? Back then, we were like, wow, she's out of her mind. Wow, she's insane. That she's going to include government-funded jobs as part of something called a Green New Deal. Somehow you fix climate change by addressing what she calls um, um, racial injustice and you fix that – you fix the economy by fixing racial injustice. Now again, I am being um, kind of um, 30,000-foot level here. Uh, she does break it down more granular, and I don't agree with her explanation, but she does have one, I have to say, and I think that's probably the gist of of the whole problem that we have is that there's an old video of her going on with Chris Cuomo and and he says, yeah, but they're, they're gonna take they're, they're gonna tax a ton of my money on that you know how, how are you gonna, how do you plan to pay for that? And she goes, how do they pay for wars, unending unlimited wars? how do they pay for how are they paying for this tax cut? And I've always said, how do you pay for a tax cut? That's like going to the supermarket, giving them a coupon, and and then they go, how are you paying for the coupon? What? I don't understand. How how do you pay for a tax cut? You just don't collect tax dollars, and that's it. You don't get the money. I think that's the whole beauty of it. The government gets less cash. Anyway, uh, I guess she she missed that part because she's part of the group of people that fundamentally believe that it's the government's job. And again, this is why they, they value the state. They're like, no, your problem, capitalism and you are the problem because you don't buy into this whole statism thing, socialism thing. If everybody were on board with this, we'd all have free health care. We'd all have everything. We'd have equality. We'd be radical egalitarians. And it makes you think, why on earth would anybody bust their butt to be exactly like the next guy? Look at what happened in Cuba. Right. They went from rationing burgers over there, too. I remember a buddy of mine, Roland DeLume, I've told this story before. He uh, he told me when he moved from Cuba to the United States, he had a bag with him. And they said, excuse me, sir, where are you going with that bag? And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to the United States. He was so proud. And they said, you can go wherever you want, uh, but uh, you can't take that with you. That's property of the state. That's a real thing that happened. I told him once about a story about uh, that my brother had told me about a family member, Abuela Desi. She grabbed, you know, she's like, oh, it's time for lunch. She'd go outside and grab a... A hen and uh, grab it by the neck, flip it over her arm, snap its neck, and just take it right there in one hand, right into a a pot of boiling water. And that would remove the feathers. And he said, well, you could never do that in Cuba because the chicken that's walking outside your house doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the state. It belongs to Fidel. So now I think of that and I go, wow. So we all want to be like the next guy, which is broke. Because everybody else, uh, you know, they always say you want to keep up with the Joneses. If you're keeping up with the Joneses, you're trying – oh, they got a new car? Oh, let me go lease a new car. Oh, they got – they put an uh, addition on their house. They moved to this town. I want to do – people – I'm not saying you should be that way. I'm just saying people are that way because people want to improve and they want more stuff. So they work hard. They get an extra job. They do whatever they got to do. That's not going to happen though. It's never going to happen if we're going to rely on the state. Other than crooked politicians, you tell me who's ever gotten rich relying on the government. Okay, Joe Biden, Hunter Hunter Biden, I get it. But outside of those guys, not you, not me, not most people. That's the problem. But again, back in 2019, Fox News played a montage of AOC, and I want you to hear what these guys said, because this stuff, again, back then sounded like it was radical and crazy, and today... This is the main talking points just two years later of the Democrat Party, a congresswoman who's proposed all these plans, didn't get any of them signed into law, and now has the president pushing this major uh, initiative where, in fact, the entire party may rally around this. And I think if you don't think that's remarkable and that AOC pulled one over on us and she's having a last laugh, I don't know what to tell you, but listen to this answer radical environmental socialism one of the most dangerous impractical misguided economically
0: guaranteed to be devastating plans ever it sounds more like a, a green nightmare to me when none of us are able to turn on the heat or turn on the air conditioning when we outlaw
2: plane travel we outlaw gasoline we outlaw cars i think actually probably the entire u.s military because of the green new deal there's another victim of the green new deal it's ice cream Livestock will be banned. The Green New Deal wants to go after flatulent cows. So what are they saying? We're going to ban hamburgers and Americans are never going to have a barbecue and flip a hamburger again? No more steak. I guess
1: government forced veganism is in order. So we went from joking about it, ridiculing it. And again, I'm not chastising us. I'm just saying. They're winning the damn propaganda war. That's where the fight is happening in the hearts and minds of the American people, not the conservative people that that we talk to on a regular basis on our social media or the listening audience of the big talk shows uh, in conservative talk radio or podcast. That's not it. Of course, you and me, we all agree on this stuff most of the time. The problem is in all the apolitical people that don't give a damn about politics. And now all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I like what she says. Sure, it sounds right to me. That's a problem. And that's the problem that we have to address through activism of our own, through bringing the facts, through bringing a fight directly to them. And I don't mean, you know, the the violent fight, because if you don't make a disclaimer, they'll put a disclaimer on you. And that's just how it works. That's where we're at. We're looking at three point five thousand dollars a year in new taxes per person. People are going to be forced into electric cars. Imagine an electric Ford Expedition. (laughs) Could you imagine such a wimpy thing? I I once pushed a... uh, uh power not even um wireless it was a corded black and decker lawnmower and while it did cut the grass okay you had to go a little bit slower on it it wasn't the same as the um Honda engine that I had on the on the whatever it was I forget what brand it was, but it had a Honda engine where you know you boom, boom and it was. That was serious, right? You take it and you cut your grass and you're like, yeah. So look, and that's just a simple example. This Green New Deal, it's coming for you. It's coming for me. It's coming from my car and for my burger. Don't let it happen. Keep it locked right there. Straight ahead, I'm going to talk about what I saw on TV, what's going on with critical race theory, racism, and all of that stuff and woke culture. You don't want to miss it. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. This is America. He's making podcasting great again. This is America with Rich Valdez. All right. Bienvenido, America. Welcome back. Rich Valdez here. At, that's Rich Valdez with an S at Rich Valdez on the social media at richvaldez.com, our flagship website. Make sure you check it out. Those of you who have dropped a couple of uh, notes, thank you for using the Contact Us feature on richvaldez.com. The Richvaldez.com is the, the main website where you can find out everything that's going on. And... I, I did get a couple of messages from people saying that they love the show and I thank you for it. And I printed them out so I could give you a shout out by name and I left that in my briefcase. so <laughs> Forgive me. I owe you one on the next show. But again, thank you for those notes. I do appreciate them. And thank you for the reviews. Uh, we keep getting these, these uh, five-star reviews and I do appreciate the feedback. Even if it's negative feedback, I do appreciate it because it, it improves the program and it gets us to, to the goal of where we want to be of reaching more people. Because we believe this is an important message, so thank you for that. Um, that being said, I was watching TV, and um, it reminded me of the time that I had produced a movie with James O'Keefe from Project Veritas, and of course he he was you know the star of the show and everything. Uh, but we made this movie called expose Hollywood's war on America's energy independence. And one day in a strategy session with O'Keefe, he decided to, uh, he's like, what can we do? How can we uh, really get this thing on the map, like really in their face and, you know, troll the leftists. And we were thinking, and the idea hatched that we should do something with the Tribeca Film Festival. And that was a good idea. And then he said, what's that big thing where everybody goes every year? You know, and all the big celebrities go. And and I was like, the Cannes Film Festival in Cannes, France? And he was like, yeah, let's go to that. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I don't know if they're going to invite us to that one. That one's a little uh, out of our league. But you know what? James doesn't think that way. He's a really big picture thinker, and that's why he does what he does. And he's suing the New York Times and winning, and he's suing Twitter and winning. But lo and behold, yes, we had an independent screening – uh, of of our film had the film uh, expose hollywood's war on american energy independence in 2014 in Cannes, france and that's can two n's e s at the end right can with an s <laughs> and uh, it was really a great time and just i was watching tv and i saw something that reminded me of that because the oscars are coming up and of course we didn't win any awards because you know they weren't we weren't an official selection it was a media preview but um Funny story from that was that O'Keefe was on the elevator and he bumped into Harvey Weinstein. And I ran into a whole bunch of problems. I had to renew my passport and and ha- down to the wire, uh, missing a flight. So anyway, good times with uh, the Project Veritas team. And uh, not so good times with the Oscars because I don't think it's going to be that interesting this year. But speaking of TV and stuff, I was watching TV. And some of the shows that uh, I like to watch every now and again to just... Cleanse the mind. I brainwash myself because I consume so much media that I like a little break. So I'll watch anything, um, really anything to get to get out of that, that uh, news, 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 politics mindset for a couple of hours. And I was watching this, uh, you know, what I would describe as a fireman show or, you know, firefighter show. And every show now is just incredibly woke. And instead of like using like one scene – to tackle the wokeness and like check it off. All right, we did our social responsibility. We talked about wokeness. This whole show beginning to end was all about wokeness and about they brought in a therapist and they started talking to the firefighters and they were explaining things. And, and I don't want to be one-sided here. I really want to be open to dialogue because uh, I do believe that the media is systemically and psychologically abusing people on both sides of the aisle. And what I mean by that is if you hear about something related to woke culture and somebody promoting critical race theory, I think people are inclined to say, oh, it's a bunch of BS. Okay, I'm with you on that for the most part. But I also think we shouldn't just dismiss people out of hand because they believe in something that we don't agree with. right? I think it's very important for us to listen to them and actually have dialogue. Now, I get it. There's a couple of crazy, radical fringe people that you just can't talk to. I get that. I do. Like the, the one girl in the UK that had like the socialist flag behind her and she drops to her knees and she's wearing a yellow vest or whatever. She screams, little beanie cap. She's like, ah! That's one of the funniest memes ever. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're like, what are you rambling about, sir? But if you do, you're laughing a lot right now. Bottom line here is racism does exist. And I just want to say, I like black people. I think they're good for America. I don't have a problem with any race. Really, I don't. But I do have a problem when any race is monolithically portrayed, in particular by the media. You know, it's kind of like, and I use this, uh, and you've heard me say this before, and people tell me, why is it that Hispanics always vote for the Democrats? I go, why is it that every Antifa guy is white, right? Just to kind of jar them a little bit so they can be, you realize you know, of course, you're a white conservative and I'm a Hispanic conservative. So we're, we're not all anything. And this whole idea of being monolithic is not. That's how they think the left, the radical collectivist. That's their thing. Our thing is individuality and liberty, individualism, Americanism. And I think we need to stay in our lane, stay in our train of thought. Because it's important. As a republic of sovereign states, we've got states that do their own thing, but we're all part of this grander thing known as America. Got it. Understood. Here in New York, half of the police force is black and Latino. Now, that may not be the case for other parts of the country. And I don't think that it matters that there are people of different races either, to to tell you the truth. I mean, I think it can't hurt, right? It cannot hurt to have You know a um, for example in New Jersey I know that every now and again you'll see the um, like in the newspaper or whatever they'll say you know Fort Lee or Palisades Park these areas have very high Korean populations that live in these in these uh, municipalities and they'll say hiring police officer must be fluent in Korean Okay so they wanted somebody so that when they show up to uh, to somebody's house and their grandmother or grandfather's having a medical emergency and perhaps they don't speak English well or because of the emergency they forget they want uh, an officer that can roll up and say all right I speak Korean I want to be able to communicate with this person in their time of need I don't think it's necessarily about mirroring the community Now, everybody has different opinions on these things, and I'm sure people are going to disagree with me. I'm not totally against that idea. I think, sure, why not? If if you're a cop in Washington Heights, right, where 99, and I'm making this up, but 99% of people are from the Dominican Republic, and they speak Spanish. You're going to tell me that it's not a benefit to speak Spanish in Washington Heights? Or what about being a cop walking a beat in Chinatown? You're going to tell me that it's not helpful to speak Mandarin or Cantonese? Of course it is. Now, I'm not saying that they have to be Chinese. I'm just saying I see a benefit to that. Sure. You can you can relate to your community better. One of the ways that this was personified was Curtis Sleba, right? My colleague, WABC Radio. He started the Guardian Angels, but he started, and I don't want to use the word thugs, but rugged urban youth. How about that? Guys that knew the inside of Rikers Island came out and didn't want to be involved in gangs and drugs or anything like that. So they got with the guardian angels program, safety patrol group that Curtis started and they hit the streets and they knew exactly what these other guys were doing because they used to do that too. They spoke the language of the community. So they were able to make a change and do things in the community. So I think when it comes to people saying, you know, uh Black people have to keep their money in black banks or, or whatever or you know, blacks don't have the same access to capital that somebody else would have because you know, less than 1% of all banks in America are owned by white people or publicly traded corporations or whatever, what have you. I don't think that works that way and the reason why is – again, I use radio as an example – there's not a ton of conservative Puerto Ricans in talk radio or even in podcasts for that matter. I'm sure there's a, a minority and I don't think that has to do with the ethnicity or our background or skin color. I think that has to do with just preference and choice that people just don't want to be involved in this type of thing. They want to do something else. You know, I know a lot of Puerto Ricans want to be baseball players. A lot of Dominicans want to be baseball players. A lot of Dominicans become baseball players. So I think that is is a real part of it is what people want to do. And again, I'm being tangential here. This is not what I was uh, planning on talking about. I wanted to talk about the TV, but um, going off this deep end, Thomas Sowell, He, uh, you know, he's one of my heroes in life. I got to talk to him once for five minutes. I probably tell you that story every time I can. And Thomas Sowell, he, um, he always makes things so simple and easy to point out. And one of the things that he pointed out was that. People say, "Oh no, Jews have the monopoly on, on jewelry stores, or on this, or on whatever." And he pointed out, did the you know took the time, did the, the research, and pointed out that it was Jews that were mainly involved in commerce historically, and so they they already had an edge. It became an intrinsic part of their culture to kind of um, barter and negotiate. You know, so you would see somebody be like, yeah, hey, I'll give you you know two shekels for this, and you're like, oh no, hell no, <laughs> no, one and a half, take it or leave it. You know, it just became a part of what they do. So when people say, oh, they have a monopoly on this or on Hollywood or on that, different people have different strengths and and gravitate towards different things. Especially if they stick together when um, they're in a neighborhood like you know Chinatown or Spanish Harlem back in the days, or the Italian neighborhoods when I grew up in Brooklyn. So my point is, there's so many. Interesting parts of this that I don't know that exist in other parts of the country, but I don't think them to be racist in any way. And we shouldn't look at them as if they're racist in any way. But anyway, I was watching TV and I saw an old friend of mine from my days at Pillar College, really good guy, a pastor, Phil Davis. He um, was hosting a TV show on his local PBS channel. I have a lot of respect for Phil. He had some remarkable young ladies on his show. And despite um, divergent views, I give them a lot of props for taking action for doing that because I know that the conservative story is rarely told unless we're, we're the ones telling it. But I do have to say, I was impressed and taken aback, you know, because it's a double edged sword you, when you find that the leftists are getting young people to to buy into their thinking, their way of life, their philosophy. At 15 years old, at 14 years old, you think, man, that's not good for the things we believe in, like liberty and and, and America as a whole, the idea that we know as America, the Constitution. But at the same time, I say, wow, it's really impressive that these young people are dedicating themselves not to just um, whatever your favorite pastime is, but to actually changing the America they see. And I think – I would love for more young people, my own young people, to do the same thing for our cause. But I want you to hear uh, from the, um, one of the guests on the show who uh, was explaining how and why she got involved in this uh, student group. Maddie, now you
0: choose to be a voice for oppressed people. Where did you get your drive to do what you're doing? Um, and, And if you could talk a little bit about what your understanding is of white privilege.
2: Yeah, so first I'd like to say thank you for having me here. <laughs> it's it's really exciting to be here. Um, for me, it probably started when I was about nine years old, um, when I moved to Pennsylvania, and my family opened a independent bookstore, Let's oh, Play Books. Okay. Um, and from the get-go, my mom's mission as the owner of the store was to bring in books that showed diversity, that showed culture, um, that showed equality in all respects. And it then hit me that how privileged I had been. I've been an avid reader my whole life. I was able to walk into a library and see myself on the cover of a picture book. Mm. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a marine biologist. There was a book with someone who looked just like me that I could find like that. And it hit me um, when we opened the bookstore that kids didn't have that. That that wasn't, that wasn't wow. something that a child of color could walk into the library and see themselves. They had no one telling them, yes, you can do it, like I did. And that was the first thing that hit me that showed me my privilege and opened my eyes and said, I have never questioned whether I had the ability to do something. I could. I can Mm-hmm. The books, they show me I can. My classrooms, they show me I can. So that was my first understanding of my white privilege. Um, and I'm still you know, continuing, obviously, to do the work to fight to be a better white ally because everybody deserves that. Every single child should be able to walk in to a bookstore or to their school and feel like every single adult in that building is telling them that they can be whatever they want to be. And right now, our society is not promoting that, and it's not okay. So that that's my real drive for it, and where it all started.
1: So let's take a second and take a look at what she said, because you know what—that girl was like fifteen years old. She carried herself extremely well. I didn't agree with anything she said, but I, she's real. She's in ten years, she won't even be my age. In twenty years, she'll be closer to my age. What she's going to do in the next twenty years is going to impact this world. She's not my ally, but I don't think she's my enemy. She's just someone that has a divergent opinion. She's someone that believes differently. And I think that's part of this conversation that we have to have as a nation is stop looking at people as enemies. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there that say, no, they're no longer our adversaries. They're our enemies. I I, I don't agree. I don't agree. Hands down. I don't think I believe that leftism is the enemy of freedom. I do believe that and it needs to be fought that way. But I don't believe these people are are enemies of mine. I just haven't crossed that bridge. I do believe that we can have a conversation. I do believe that these people could be your neighbor and we could uh, live peacefully. Oh, come on, Rich. I can't believe you think you could. You either either love America or you don't. That's right. You do either love America or you don't. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that people who uh, hate America or the American idea are somehow uh, at least the, the enemy within. I think they become the enemy when they take action towards actually hurting me. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about violence. So if they're doing politics, I'll do politics. If they're doing activism, I'll do activism. They're an adversary. It's like going to court. You don't walk into court and there's a prosecutor and a defense attorney. And the prosecutor's like, that guy's my enemy. You could think that to psych yourself out. Like I listened to 2 Chains on the way in to get ready for the podcast. But at the end of the day, I'm not really... Roll up on the scene with my ceiling missing. Right. That's what he says in the song. He's pulling up in a convertible. Uh, I'm pulling up in my Ford Expedition. Anyway, my point is, I just don't see that correlation. But the point I want to make is Annie says or Maddie, whatever her name is, she says, oh, you know what? When I was nine years old is when wokeness knocked on her front door. Hey, it's Wokeness. Maddie, open up. So Maddie opens up and she says, hey, at nine years old, my mom owned a bookstore. Her mom is a capitalist. She owns a bookstore and she began bringing in diversity. So I'm thinking, okay, this woman cares so much about education, literacy, books, reading, whatever, and about diversity, being um, you know, a progressive, if you will, that she decided to invest and create a business, an organization where she could sell these books, where her daughter, who happens to be white, can say, I've seen myself on the cover of a million books and I never realized that these other people have never seen their faces on the cover of a book. Now, I'm going to tell you, fat little Puerto Rican kid from Brooklyn, i never seen myself on the cover of a book, yet I've done lots of different things. Matter of fact, honestly, everything I've wanted to do and really tried to do, I've actually achieved. Maybe I never really set high enough goals. Maybe that's a different thing. But you know what? I was like, you know, I want to serve in the government. I was appointed by Governor Christie and served in his administration twice. I was appointed twice, both inside as an employee of the administration, then outside on a a board, the uh, New Jersey Center for Hispanic Research and Development. I was happy with that achievement. I wanted to uh, make an impact in higher education because I remember being at NYU as a student. I was probably like 20 years old and 21 maybe, and I did a report, a, a term long, so a term paper report, and back then only 2% of Hispanics were graduating with a baccalaureate four-year degree, an undergraduate degree, and I thought, why is that so drastically different than our African-American counterparts? And the first thing that hit me in the head was as since I was a kid, I've always heard of the United Negro College Fund, but I'd never heard of the United Hispanic College Fund. Things like that just didn't exist for Hispanics. Now, I don't think they have to necessarily exist for Hispanics to begin with because I always saw myself as an American. I grew up in the era of G.I. Joe and Sergeant Slaughter. I believed in America and I thought we were all different, but we were all the same. You know, that's the brainwashing that I got as a kid. Hasidic Jews on the block that I could see from the back of my apartment and Russians, Albanians next door. I mean, it was a very eclectic area. Half my class was black and Hispanic from Flatbush when I went to public school, 197 in Brooklyn. So, I mean, I grew up in diversity. Diversity was a normal thing. Anyway, I point this out because Maddie's mom put her money where her mouth was to make this bookstore, this woke bookstore with diversity everywhere. Maddie feels that she, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe that my friend has never seen herself on the cover of a book. Well, guess what? Check out this lady, Oprah. And again, I know a lot of people don't like Oprah, but Oprah got canned from some... Place in uh, in uh, not Detroit in Chicago. What'd she do? She started her own thing. She started her own thing. And now she's like the richest woman ever in media. God bless her. Have you ever seen Oprah magazine? I see it every time I go to the supermarket. Do you know who's on the cover every single month? Oprah. Oprah put herself on a cover. It's probably like 10 years now. She's on the cover every single month of Oprah magazine. You would think that's odd, right? If I started rich magazine and I'm on the cover every month. But Oprah did it and it seemed to work fine. So my point is you don't need to see yourself on the cover of a magazine to believe that you can become a marine biologist or to believe that I could get into radio or to believe that I could open up a, a cell phone business or a barbershop or any of the other things that I've achieved in my life. So why? Now, is it because I'm cut from different cloth and I'm somehow a superior? Is this Valdez supremacy? Of course not. That's BS. If you're taught to be a victim, if you're taught, and this is going back to the TV show now, I was watching his firefighter show and it was all about wokeism and all these guys were going in there giving these soliloquies to the uh, counselor that came in to talk about the George Floyd thing. And I shouldn't say George Floyd thing. I should say the George Floyd debacle. I don't know, whatever, killing, murder, uh, as we know now. The, the bottom line where to me, where it all comes together is if you're taught, my dad my dad loved to pound Budweiser's. He smoked Winston cigarettes. He was a tough dude, got into fights. Later learned he was muscle for like an illegal gambling thing in the back of bodegas in Brooklyn. After he died, I found out. That's how well he kept the secret. You know, you go in to buy a whatever, uh, uh, an alcapurria or a empanada in a, in a bodega and you go to the back and inside there was a bunch of joker poker machines in the back room. It was just crazy. And I remember seeing that, but I never put two and two together as a little kid. But the point was, my dad would tell me, mira, Richard, or macho. He used to call me macho. I guess that's why we're so machista over here. And uh, he would tell me, mira, macho, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. Anything. And it was like gospel truth. It was like God was coming down from the heavens and earth and telling me I could do absolutely. So I grew up thinking I could do absolutely anything. Just had to work hard. So I always picked goals and I did those things. Now, I, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm trying to make the case that I am brown, right? By by, by every stretch of the... My mom's fair skin. My dad was dark skin. I, uh, I believe that I could do it and I did it. So I think Maddie's wrong on that account. But if you're taught over and over, listen, people that look like you don't get this. People that look like you don't aren't allowed to do it. Those people don't look like you. You don't belong there. You don't do that. Now, is that completely the fault of the upbringing of these people? Perhaps. But is there truth in the fact that if you're a cop or anybody's a cop and you have somebody, and I'm just going to go on a limb here. You pull somebody over wearing a hooded sweatshirt, black dreadlocks, a, you pull somebody over B short blonde buzz cut collared shirt, khaki pants. First person says, you know, uh, I don't know what this guy is. He fits the description of the last 10 guys that I may have arrested or have been in in an issue with. So as a a cop, I think there are biases that exist. There's all sorts of profiling that exists. During 9-11, they weren't pulling over white guys that looked like KKK members when they were looking for Al-Qaeda. They were pulling over guys that looked like me with beards (laughs) because they you know, are like like, uh, Mr. Jizzle, who's Jewish from Chappaqua but happens to have a beard and kind of looks like a young version of Jesus. So this is my point is that it's not about right and wrong. It's just a lot of things are situational and I'm not trying to justify racism. I'm really not, but I am trying to say, I'm pretty sure that my black friends have been pulled over more than my white friends and my own experiences as a young kid growing up getting pulled over weren't always very positive. I got pulled over once by by two cops happened to be white. They weren't very nice to me. I knew they were busting my chops. I knew I'd done nothing wrong. And as I was pulled over, a bunch of guys that were visibly white because they were very close to me, they screamed, you effing SPICs, super loud, and hurled the big supersized White Castle soda at the side of my car while the cop was at my window pulling me over. I looked at him and he just said, get me the registration card. As if nothing had happened. Now, is that an act of some racism? Was it stupidity? Was it being young and dumb? Maybe all of the above. Who knows? It didn't deter me. So to say that it wasn't racist, to use a derogatory term for Hispanics, of course it was. It was bad. It was not good. I've seen racism. But it, it didn't hold me back. And at least I didn't believe it it holds you back. I've had people tell me, people even older than me tell me. Well, you know, people like us, it's hard for us to move ahead. And I say, Bravo Sierra, BS. Not the case. Anyway, I don't want to beat that dead horse too long. I just want to put a point out there. Somebody has generations long been led to believe that they're a victim. They go outside and they happen to be afraid. The media is out there every single day telling them, if you're a young black man, you're being hunted by the white people. Trump is a white supremacist. The Republicans are out to get you. At some point, I have to take into consideration that these people may, in fact, be on edge because the media is scaring the crap out of them. And that's how demagoguery works. So I don't want to sit here and constantly put the blame on somebody. Say, Oh, because you think you're a, a victim. It's not about always thinking you're a victim. It's about the subterfuge that's going on in the larger ecosystem of our media. Anyway. Maddie speaks about becoming a professor and never stopping her activism. She's 15 or 16, right? So just look at those two things, how they're tied together. She's already thinking, I want to be a history professor when I grow up. And I want to continue activism. She wants to be an activist professor. If you, you know, if you paid any attention to the media, you'll realize it's filled with activists. If you pay any attention to higher ed, they're filled with activists, They have decided that we have to change the story that's being told. The way I say it, we have to alter and change the truth with our story, a.k.a. propaganda. They are propagandists posing as professors, propagandists posing as journalists. That is what we're up against. I support liberty and the free market. So do what you got to do and say what you got to say, because we all have to sell our ideas on the free market. And people are either going to buy them if they like them or they're going to reject them if they don't. The real highlight here is if we don't like the opinions of others or the direction of how this activism is going to shape our culture, we have to work twice as hard because we don't own the media, because we don't own the college campus or the college classroom. We don't own so many different layers of bureaucracy within governments, local, state and federal governments. So we have to work twice as hard to counter it. But are we working twice as hard? Or are we just complaining? I'm not saying you, but so many people do. You see, I think it's a great thing that people want their voices to be heard and to stand up for what they view as oppression. Because I do believe in liberty, which is the opposite of oppression. I believe in free speech. I take exception to ideas that I think are harmful. And that I'm kind of makes people uncomfortable or uh, offends them. I get it. For example, when Coca-Cola says that employees need to be less white, I think that's a problem. Not so much for me because I'm not white. But I don't think any huge or small employer should tell people that they should be less black or less Hispanic. That's wrong. In the same way, the reverse is also wrong to say that one race is better than another. Racial or ethnic supremacy is not something that I support. But we need to be cognizant of the world and the free marketplace of ideas and everything that we say. Because if black lives matter, we must be comfortable with the notion that white lives matter and that Hispanic lives matter and Asian lives matter just the same way. What's good for the goose has to be good for the gander. If we're going to have a black student union, then we should be able to have a white student union and a Latino student union. Maybe even religious ones like Jewish student union, Muslim student union, because we have all of these disparate unions and eventually we're going to give air to a problem where we have divested and segmented and segregated our society so much where we've hurt this very um, unity, the same unity that we've been talking about having, right? So everybody's complaining we're more divided now than ever. So let's are we focused on unity or are we focused on division? And again, I'm not preaching to you. This is a general topic for everybody. I'm hoping there's a bunch of people that disagree with me listening to this right now. So with a degree of common sense and indeed common ground is also a wise thing to have, how do we see ourselves as ethnic beings or as citizens of a country, right? We don't see ourselves as ethnic people. I don't go, hey, I'm Rich Valdez. I'm the American Hispanic heritage. Nobody does that. Right, nobody says, "Hey, how you doing, buddy?" Yeah, Italian. Just nobody does it. It's not a thing. I've never met anybody that introduced themselves by way of their ethnicity or whatever. So, I think um, you know, racial descriptors have been been a thing in New York for a long time. So, I think my opinions may be different from many, but I know that these things get tricky. And while I'm an American both jointly and separately, meaning I'm an American by myself and I'm an American with my country, I would never relinquish my own agency, my own industry as an individual in the name of uh, collectiveness unless I felt I had to, not because of coercion, but because of a sense of duty like serving in the military or something like that, where of course, you're not an individual when you're in the military. You're part of a group serving a cause that's greater than oneself. So this is what the progressives are doing. These girls that I just played you the audio of, at least the one girl, Maddie, they're likely not even old enough to vote, yet they're prepared to defend their stance on these social issues. And they're organizing at the high school level, albeit a position that I may take exception to for a number of reasons. It doesn't negate the action that they're taking to change their country. And that to me is the part that we're missing, that we need to do the same and more to beat them. What's stopping anybody that's listening right now from donating to a patriotic conservative group that's reaching out to high schoolers or college students? What's stopping any of us, me included, from fighting the way the left does for hearts and minds? I think it's our unwillingness sometimes to read their own playbook, like Rules for Radicals, for example. A lot of people tell me, I'm not reading that. It's dedicated to Lucifer. Or maybe it's because we say things where we excuse ourselves, where we expect like, you know, what can a regular person like me do? I'm just an average American. What can I do? You could do a whole lot of things. People say, oh, I got kids to feed. I've got a job. I can't go out there and play politics. That's that's for you guys in talk radio or you guys in politics. All I could say is this. Donald Trump was 72 years old when he ran. He was never in politics, but he got his whole family to join him in this battle, and he took on the swamp. He lost half a billion dollars, like $600 million in his net worth doing so. He's been smeared in the media. His name has been dragged through the mud, impeached twice, and acquitted twice. So the next time you're thinking, what can an average working stiff or stay-at-home mom or dad do? Now you know. It's a whole lot that you can do. So stand for something. Because if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people like you to do nothing. That's all I've got. Hasta la próxima. Until the next time, America, I am Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is America.